2: Right, hello. This is Lisa Held, and you're listening to the Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. During this summer 2020 season of the show, I've been focusing on how farms and food businesses are pivoting, adjusting, and adapting to this new world to feed their communities and people all over the country during the COVID-19 pandemic. My guest today is Jordan Seisler. Jordan, did I say your name right? You did. Okay, (laughs) Jordan Seisler, the CEO of Handsome Brook Farms, a company that sells organic pasture-raised eggs from a network of small farms around the country. Jordan, thanks for being here.
3: Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. Nice to speak with you again.
2: Yeah, you too. I'm so excited to finally have you on the show. I was going to ask you about your last name before and I forgot, but you know, it's (laughs) the I'm glad I got it right. uh, First of all. So, um, you know, last week's episode was on local meat processing. And I did this whole introduction about how, when we think about how the pandemic has affected the food system disruptions in meat production are definitely at the top of the list in terms of the biggest impacts that we've seen, I think, and that people are talking about. Um, But eggs have also been in the news a lot, for mostly for one specific reason, which is that prices have gone up a ton at the grocery store. So let's just start there. So Hansenbrook Farm eggs are already more expensive at the grocery store compared to conventional. Have you had to raise prices during the pandemic?
3: No, we haven't. And, you know, I think that's obviously something that reflects our commitment to our customers as well as, you know, uh, is a a reflection also of our contract model with our growers, which is basically uh, a fixed price that we offer our grower network and in turn allows us to sort of back to back to our our customer base and, and hold prices consistent despite you know, uh, a pretty unprecedented surge in demand.
2: Yeah, so w- why have prices for conventional eggs gone up so much? Like, w- what is what are conventional egg companies doing differently that you haven't had to face?
3: Sure, so I think you know the biggest difference between conventional eggs and specialty eggs is um, conventional eggs are priced based on uh, an index known as the earner index, and so um, there's actually a quoted... Um, you know metric that governs egg pricing, and when the pandemic hit um, you know the the surge demand um, that that came with stay at home orders and to some extent i think at the top of the pandemic some some pa- some panic buying on top of just the the realization that people would be eating home um, really sort of created a a very short term um, supply demand and balance that took average commodity prices from the low one dollar um, you know sub a dollar twenty i don 't know the exact uh, you know quote mm-hmm. but to as high as i think three dollars and thirty eight cents so you know over three hundred percent and so I think that was sort of the the market function of this index reacting um, at the yeah. same time, uh, I, I think the, the the index and and the the price of commodity eggs fell about as as fast as as it rose, um, as hmm. as certain measures were taken uh, to open up. I guess the chains where uh, certain certain supply had been directed into food service that was no longer. Uh, necessary, and once those eggs found their way into shelf-ready cartons, um, some of that was introduced into the into the retail food supply, and and then I think you know buying patterns, um, I guess, subsided. Um, I, I think you know certainly eggs remain in strong demand today, but yeah. even as we sit here in in early June versus mid March, I think consumer Eating habits uh, change seasonally, and that's always been um, part of sort of the the egg market, you know, annual cycle. So you know, you've got a, a number of factors with you know both uh, states opening up, people stop you know uh, eating as much hot breakfast in in uh, the warmer months, and I guess how much banana bread can one eat. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, the, the baking and the, the, the meals at home and all the rest of it that, that led to that spike, um, you know, I think it was a sort of a confluence of factors and then a normalization of, of, um, of flow or an additional of, of flow back into retail that helped satisfy demand. And, and correspondingly, um, you saw commodity prices fall back into, again, uh, the low $1 range here.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, it's it's so interesting just how supply chains have been impacted, and and you know, seeing prices rise and fall. And and I just right before we started recording, I actually saw that this morning in um, Politico's Morning Ag newsletter, they reported too that there's this whole other segment of the egg um, industry, which are farmers that produce eggs for the liquid egg market. Yes. And, oh, my gosh, the, the governor of Iowa sent a letter to um, Secretary Perdue saying that, you know, most of Iowa's egg producers, something like 70 percent, actually produce eggs for the liquid egg market, which is all restaurants, hospitals, you know, food service, all the places that shut down. And those producers, the prices have plummeted and they can't sell their product. And, you know, they're asking for help from from the government, from the uh, CFAT program. But it's just it just made me think about you know it's like there's so many different channels and the market is so big and complicated and um, but I guess it, you know in your case it's it's not that complicated I think your supply chain is a lot simpler right Well,
3: <laughs> um, it, it is and it is yes. I mean we we yes. we have a, a, a kind of a somewhat proprietary supply chain um, in terms of how we're structured, but. Yeah, we definitely, um, you know, fortunately for Brook, our end markets have been principally retail-focused, and so we didn't have the same food service exposure that those farmers in Iowa are um, unfortunately suffering from. Um, And, you know, just real quick, I think you had mentioned, you know, the meat processors and and some of the Mm -hmm. disruption and so forth. I mean, I think the largest uh, liquid egg uh, processor in the country, Michael's Foods, um has been severely impacted and if either has filed for bankruptcy protection or is preparing to do so I'm not I'm not certain whether that's occurred or not but I, it's it's just in support of what you're saying I think unfortunately there are there are pockets of the market that are you know doing very poorly while others are are doing quite well and yeah you know, we're we're very fortunate to be uh positioned in the latter
2: yeah well, and and you're mo- you are mostly doing retail already. So, um, did you see a large um spike in demand over the last few months?
3: We certainly did. Um, you know, we had certain weeks that were just unprecedented in terms of order growth being, you know, several hundred percent above normal. Um, and then you know, certainly a, a tapering off and a leveling. Um, is that certainly wouldn't have been sustainable from a supply perspective at all. Um. Mm-hmm. and uh but I think we're if if we look at Hansombrook through end of may we're probably up nearly thirty percent year on year um, with with the with the biggest difference being you know very little promotional activity in in twenty twenty so most most of those eggs that that we've sold have been sold you know truly at at full retail versus you know the the type of um trade support that we often provide to our trading partners, uh, you know, to, to promo X. Huh.
2: And have, has it been challenging to keep up with the demand while also just dealing with, you know, the variables that COVID-19 has introduced, such as, you know, increased, um, protections you need to put in place for employees, kind of changing processes to, to keep people safe and, like, what, what does that look like?
3: Sure, um, and it, yeah, it has been challenging, but I think we've done a tremendous job adapting and certainly the, the health and safety of our employees at every level of the organization, as well as the, you know, more than 80 families that comprise our grower network were paramount um, when considering, you know, what measures that we were gonna take uh, to maintain supply chain integrity, but also uh, protect the individuals that really are at the heart of what we do. Um, so, you know, we we sort of on a, on a staff level implemented stay-at-home measures um, across the company. We're headquartered in New York, New York, as you know, Lisa. So, you know, that that was a uh, an easy decision to send people home. Um, right. You know, but we we also are an essential business so you know the question became do we send our field staff out to the farms um uh you know uh, uninterrupted and, and we sort of spoke with our team and determined it best to uh adhere to stay at home uh notwithstanding you know necessary visits like S. C. Swabs, uh, necessary bloods—you know, drawing blood to go get lab results, uh, Mm -hmm. depopulations, repopulations, and so forth. But you know, we we work with uh, you know a a variety of growers across ten states, largely in rural Amish and Mennonite communities, and certainly didn't want to be sort of the the reason why uh, any one community got exposed to
2: yeah. coronavirus
3: or you know um, something exogenous, based on our account. So uh, we've we've since, as of June first, re-implemented field visits, but with other measures, you know, to to basically avoid human contact. I mean, we we want our staff going out and checking up on the flocks and the state of um, the farms, but doing so in a socially you know socially distant compliant manner as it relates to direct grower engagement um mm-hmm. and certainly you know additional hand sanitizer and you know we, we already were in biosuits and protective booties and you know foot baths with bleach and right. all the, you know all the things that um we we kind of incorporate into our core biosecurity protocols especially as an organic producer you know are are, are really important um so you know the good news is we were doing a lot of this stuff the right way to begin with. It's just more about an additional measure of um, of caution and distancing. Uh, truckers were advised as well to avoid personal contact with the growers. Egg pickups were being done, um, you know, purposefully without saying hello or or you know, collaborating on loading pallets and so forth. So, um, yeah, that's that was at the farm level. I think the at the packing level uh you've got um a, another set of of protocols that were implemented um through our co-packers. Yeah, it seems like
2: there it might be more there might be more people working in one place. Yeah,
3: then like- there you're more shoulder to shoulder, I mean not not yeah. literally, but you know certainly nothing like what, you know, Smithfield and Sioux Falls sounded right. like, but um yeah, you know, the the other nice thing about our our network and the way we've structured ourselves, being multi-regional, is that we work with four co-packers to, you know, basically create a more localized um, or regionalized production system, and yeah, you know, therefore we don't tax any one facility, you know, too greatly, and um, mm-hmm. you know, we we kind of built our our farm production network and our and our packing network to mitigate concentration risk, you know? So I I think, fortunately, we were pretty well positioned. um, And and should anything have happened in any one place, we had three others to go to, you know, if we had, you know, God forbid, Unfortunately, fortunately, that wasn't the case. And, uh, you know, I think the integrity of our supply chain uh, held up really well. And that that wasn't without a lot of help and and care taken at every level. and we we certainly appreciate the the job that you know our staff, our our third party truckers and co packers um, have done during this you know sort of crazy time in our in our in our companies uh, and and frankly our national history.
2: Right, absolutely. Um, we're going to take a quick break. Um, when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about just the Hansenberg firm's model, and you know how how you were able to be set up well for this moment in time, and and what you do differently. We'll be right back.
1: This episode is brought to you by Square. We all know that this is an incredibly challenging time for our friends running restaurants and small food businesses. With social distancing in place, people are staying home and eating in, and restaurants have had to pivot to pickup and delivery only. HRN would usually be recording our podcast from our studio inside Roberta's, but since they've had to close their dining room, they've ramped up their frozen pizza production, set up a wine and grocery shop, and seen their delivery orders skyrocket. Like Roberta's, many restaurants have been changing offerings day by day as they figure out how to best serve their customers. If you run a restaurant or small business, Square has the tools to help you adapt. One of these tools is the Square online store. It lets you set up a free online ordering page with curbside pickup and local delivery so you can keep customers safe. You can deliver orders yourself or integrate with delivery partners. Its order hub lets you manage all your incoming orders in one place, no matter which delivery partners you choose to use. Square has all the tools to help you stay connected to customers, no matter where they are. See everything that's available by visiting square.com go slash farm report.
2: All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. I have been talking to Jordan Sizer, the CEO of Hanson Brook Farms, a organic and pasture-raised egg company. So, we talked a lot about um, this moment in time and how you've been kind of weathering the the storm of COVID-19. And, but I want to kind of take a step back and talk a little bit about. Hansenbrook Farms overall and, and you know, the, the company, what makes it different. And you mentioned, Jordan, that you have about 80 families in your grower network. That's um, correct. Can you talk about, yeah, can you talk about where they are, first of
3: all? Sure. So um, while well, we started uh, in upstate New York with five hens uh, on a single farm, we now have over 80 <laughs> partner farms uh, across Ten states that includes uh, New York, PA, West Virginia, Ohio, uh, Indiana, Kentucky, Tennessee, Missouri, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. So I think I've got a little. Wow. So,
2: um.
3: yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it sounds, you know, disparate, but, you know, I think the key to our, our business has been sort of organizing Um Discrete regions and clustering uh, these these small farm partners together, and in, in you know as as logistically efficient a configuration as we can, and we, we work at that every day. But um, yeah, we, we have a we have a fairly decent sized footprint at this point, and we're proud to be uh, you know the largest producer of organic pasture raised eggs in the United States.
2: Interesting. And well, and so you're the, lar- the largest producer of organic raised eggs, um, but it's, you know, each farm is not that large in the, you know, on the landscape. It's you're sort of going for aggregation rather than um, consolidation, I think. Um, would you say that that's a that's hundred percent accurate and that we yeah.
3: we've scaled the business through aggregation as opposed to concentration uh in any one place or in any one um, facility and I yeah. think that's what's allowed us to you know continue to grow um incrementally and and at the same time you know not introduce risk into the into the mix. The way mm-hmm. you know, oftentimes scaling in, in a particular concentrated manner invites.
2: Yeah, and how big is a typical farm?
3: Uh, an average flock is uh, somewhere between 9,500 and 10,000 hens. Okay, so that's that's pretty small, you know, um, you know, relative to, you know, a, a typical cage-free. Um, complex facility it can have hundred fifty thousand birds in a, in a house it can have forty thousand mm-hmm. i mean it, it it ranges but it's really quite antithetical to you know call it factory farming or or industrial complex farming yeah
2: yeah and the farms are are smaller they're they're just fewer hens um, but the production system also looks differently. Um, can you talk a little bit about, a little bit about how um, the practices on the farm differ from conventional or even really from organic systems, right?
3: Sure, so I mean, we, we, we do have an organic system, but it's an organic pastured system. And so when you, when you introduce pasture raised as a welfare standard, um, you're talking about 400 hens per acre of outdoor access. So that 10,000, call it average 10,000 hen farm requires Mm -hmm. 25 organic acres of pasture for the birds to be able to um, roam and graze and forage and do their chicken thing. Um, Hmm. So, you know, it's quite land intensive. um, Yeah. Without being as fixed asset uh, facility or barn intensive. Um, And so, you know, when you kind of overlay the welfare and the organic it becomes a pretty unique operation particularly at our scale um, just because it's not that easy to find that many places that haven't you know sprayed their land either knowingly or unknowingly with something that would preclude one from uh, obtaining organic certification and that's that's the sad yeah. reality of, of the farming system in, in this country today as, as I, I, I believe you know
2: so how are you finding farmers to join the network? Like, do they come to you? Do you actually go out and, and look for people? How does that work?
3: Sure. So I think um, we've built our network um, through, uh, you know, really success begets success. And word of mouth, I think, becomes the most effective tool And when you kind of uh, understand the dynamics of the Amish and Mennonite communities. Um, you're talking about, you know, fairly insular communities, but also highly interconnected uh, communities across mm-hmm. state lines and, and certainly even within a state across county lines. Um, so, you know, I think really uh, you kind of have to prove yourself as a business and make, you know, and, and demonstrate that your, your contract cash flows and once it does and once you've proven that you know you're a good company to work with and you support the growers needs and help them you know many of many of our growers were first time you know layer hen farmers so you know okay we we had to sort of put the infrastructure in place to be able to help them learn how to do this the right way without you know sort of making too many critical mistakes early on. And, you know, but once you, once you do it the first time, it gets certainly a whole lot easier. And like I said, su- success, begets success. And I think we, we had a, a really strong network effect through the success of, you know, many growers.
2: Yeah. They kind of talk to each other about the the company and then refer people to you. And, um, and I, I think, it's interesting that um, you said a lot. A lot are new to um, to laying hens. Is it a lot of farmers who were maybe doing something else and then add the handsome brook um, to their farm? Because I feel like you could you could have a bigger farm and kind of be doing vegetables or you know doing something else and then add like a, a barn for laying hens as well.
3: Yes, so I, I think we yeah. had we've had a good um, mix of growers, some of whom were uh, either doing some dairy, um, doing some other livestock, some of them doing vegetables and crops or flowers. Um, many of them though were principally earning their living off farm, and I think when mm. when Handsome Brook was introduced as a potential opportunity. Um, I think the excitement was for many of our growers to have the opportunity to be full-time on farm and um, you know kind of embrace a lifestyle that uh, many other cultures was was heavily rooted in, but you know certainly economically wasn't entirely always viable. And you know yeah. we were talking earlier about sort of the size of the farms and you know it's it you know it's it's economically intensive or financially intensive or, you know, capital intensive to build a large barn. So having a, a you know, call it a 10,000 head barn on average, like I said, you know, is, is a, is a, um, is, you know, relatively easily underwritten, um, you know, capital project for the farmer using Hanson Brooks contract, uh, along with, you know, either, Either funds that they they have available, or through you know the lending community, be it you know commercial lenders, with or without FSA support. So you know I think it's we're really proud that we offer this sort of opportunity for for folks to really live the life that they've been wanting to live. You know many of whom were other you know were tradespeople, you know carpenters, fabricators, manufacturers of some sort, um, who, who dabbled in farming but you know weren't able to really support the family full-time at home
2: yeah absolutely um you mentioned earlier a little bit about um you know working with your farmers through the pandemic um have you um have you heard anything about how your the farmers have been impacted i mean if you if your demand has been pretty much up or steady i would imagine economically they haven't been impacted that much um have they, have they been affected in other ways? Like, what are you hearing from the farmers themselves?
3: Um, it's interesting. I, and I think, you know, because we're so geographically diverse, you've got, you know, different situations in a lot of different places. Mm. But, um, you know, I, I think uh, one, one way their relationship with us has been impacted is, you know, part of our ability to fulfill the, the, the demand was to, wherever possible, Extend the productive life of the hen. So, if there was a depopulation scheduled for you know eighty weeks, if we were able to get an extra you know four to five weeks of production by moving um, the pullet placements around, we were trying to take advantage of opportunities to do so. And you know, largely that is not a unilateral decision of Hanson Brooks. It has to be made you know in in partnership with the farmer because. Certainly, they have to agree to do it, and they need enough time to, to clean up and, and get ready for the next flock in between. But you know, economically, that that generally is a win-win for both Hansenbrook and the grower to be able to take the birds out um, a bit longer. So that's you know one way that this this sort of um, situation has impacted the growers. But you know, certainly, I, I think it, it it was remarkable to me, uh, particularly you know in in sort of mid March, just really understanding that. You know, many of our farmers effectively have been quarantining forever, right? I mean, the way they live, I right? Mean, the, 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 the type of um, you know distance between their farms and their neighbors' farms. Uh,
2: yeah.
3: Uh, aside from really convening, um, you know, on Sundays, you know, at, at, at church for religious ceremonies, um, you know, they 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 live in quite a um, a secluded, you know uh, independent lifestyle. So, you know, right. in, in certain respects, uh, not much changed at all, but I think in other respects, um, you know, farmers still have to go to the store and, you know, buy their goods. And, you know, uh, many of them are, are, are going to Walmarts or, or, you know, large format stores where, you know, they can buy in bulk and, and you know, anytime, you're leaving a, an insular community to, you know, enter, a, you know, a, a more potentially exposed situation. I think everybody, um, you know, had had apprehensions, but you know, fortunately, we we none of our farmers fell ill to COVID or, or coronavirus, and uh, I think things you know fared overall quite well.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, that that's great to hear. So. One thing I want to ask you before we wrap up is, you know, through this whole pandemic, um, there's been a lot of focus on different aspects of the food system and um, a lot of conversations about how people are exposed to where their food comes from and how it gets to them more than they ever have been before, kind of being forced to think about um, food production, maybe in ways that they hadn't before. Um, And in some cases that may or may not be leading to changes in, in behavior around buying food. Um, I'm curious when it comes to eggs and, you know, specifically Brook Farms, the business you do, um, do you think that COVID-19 is going to have any long-term effects on your business or, you know, the sort of organic pasture-raised egg um, market?
3: Yeah, I mean I, I you know, I I hope so in that this the you know, this is unfortunately or fortunately, COVID has been, you know, um, good for business and I know that sounds odd, but it's a silver lining story for our grower network and our company. But it's also really great that we were here and prepared and able to support, you know, um, not only our grower families across America, but you know, many families across America needing, you know, uh healthy quality organic proteins Um, and I think what we've seen thus far and some of the you know studies that I've read um, this has really you know caused a lot of consumers to take a closer look at where their food comes from sourcing practices production practices supply chain practices and you know I think you know it, it also provided an opportunity for certain consumers who were not necessarily familiar with Hansenbrook to to try our brand whether it was by choice or or by lack of choice of what was on the shelf mm-hmm. but you know we've we were we've been contacted by several consumers who you know told us that you know now that they've experienced what our eggs taste like it it, it they're never going back you know and and i think it's mm-hmm. it's great to see that um and certainly uh you know i, I think that as consumer spending habits um change both in terms of the overall economic climate but also in terms of having less avenues to go spend your you know discretionary income um outside the home you know Mm. sort of the idea behind quality food and particularly quality staples like eggs i think makes a lot of sense to people and um you know i'm hoping that uh we can we can continue um to to sustain these these levels of sales, um, but certainly with you know the the bigger overall societal picture improving, of course, you know. Um,
2: right,
3: of course. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's put a, a real emphasis on you know how did how did this food get here and and, and you know, who was involved in getting it to to the store into my fridge and you know I think we stack up really well when people start asking that question.
2: Yeah. Well, Jordan, thank you so much for coming on the show.
3: This was great. Anytime, and you know, anything you want to chat about, I, I'd, I'd love to, uh, yeah, to pick it up with you again down the road.
2: Great. Thank Thanks. you all so much for listening to the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. I'll see you next week. The Farm Report is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage_radio. radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork.